0: Hi guys, hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you are new to this podcast, you're very welcome. My name is Kira Kelly. I'm a medical doctor specialising in public health medicine and I run the Instagram page and blog The Irish Balance and if you're a regular listener then you're very welcome back and and thanks as always for joining me again for each new episode the podcast has had a little bit of a break over the last while and it's been a busy year for us all with the COVID-19 pandemic and I really hope that wherever you're listening from you are keeping safe and well and looking after yourself I wanted to start the podcast up again because it's something that I really enjoy doing and sharing with you guys and there are so many uh doing great work out there that I wanted to bring onto the podcast. So starting with today, I'm delighted to have as my guest a really good friend of mine and fellow doctor, Dr. Kira Drum. And Kira and I were in medical school in Dublin together, and Kira is currently working in dermatology as her area of interest. Now, I asked you guys recently about podcast guests that you'd like me to chat to, and one common answer was more doctors and more female doctors at that, which I'm more than happy to, to do. So I get asked a lot about my path in medicine and it's something that I can talk about from my own experience. But of course, there's many different paths you can take as a doctor and um, many different areas of medicine. So today uh, in our, this episode, Kira and I are going to chat uh, a bit about medical school and our experience in it, a little bit about um Working as doctors in our different paths, and I'm particularly interested in Kira's path in dermatology. And then a little bit about looking after our skin from a skin cancer prevention point of view, which is obviously a really important part of, of skin health. So, Kira, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing?
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be asked to join you. I'm great. Um yeah, doing well.
0: <laughs> Good. How has your COVID-19 pandemic year been? Oh, it's been very interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice to meet. I'm kind of on the dermatology side of things now since July where I was kind of on the front line on the medical side um for the first yeah. wave
0: you were um, yeah so
1: yeah so that was quite stressful at times but um I'm really enjoying work again now and feel kind of more separate from it
0: which is yeah, nice. that is nice it's nice to kind of have almost like a tale of two halves to your year and you and I have obviously been chatting a lot over this past year kind of doing video calls and then when we were when we were allowed to we were meeting up in person but obviously that's been few and far between this year Um, I'd love if we could start here I always like to start with a bit of an introduction to from, uh, to kind of where my guests have come from um, and their background and particularly in medicine I think it'd be really interesting for people to know how you came to apply for medicine um, and kind of how you found that process and um, I suppose just a little bit about yourself. And,
1: um, yeah, well, I suppose I was never kind of die hard wanted to do medicine in school. I actually, my problem was that I had too many interests, I think, and mm. um, so i you know I come from a family of teachers, so I considered primary school teaching for a while and um, I used to be quite sporty and I swam a lot, so you know I was interested in sports science, loved languages. <laughs> I think I did a week of psychology lectures in transition year because I was considering that mm. but eventually I decided I wanted something that kind of had a ladder to climb that was quite competitive I suppose um, and then I knew I liked science but I didn't want to be in a lab and I loved working with people so that kind of led me to medicine um, in fifth year um, and in fairness my mum actually play, played devil's advocate for a while which used to drive me mad but I really appreciate it now because she's mm. very keen for me to understand the difficulties of the job because you know they had a few friends who were surgeons and um, so she was keen I understood the hours that you would move around a lot and um, so I kind of went into it with open eyes which was nice and mm. um, I actually didn't get it the well I didn't get it in Dublin the first time around for family reasons I wanted to stay in Dublin and um, so I did a year of science first and then I reset a heat pad and I had a lot less stress on me at that point Um, last time I'd done it after a week of mocks and there was a lot of pressure and you were tired uh, and I was enjoying science at that point um so I was happy if I didn't get medicine so mm-hmm. I actually ended up doing really well I think because I wasn't stressed and gotten the 99 percentile and um, so right. I got medicine in Trinity so I was
0: thrilled <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, actually,
1: I had written all these pros and cons um, about staying in science versus going to medicine you know I was so undecided yeah but I actually I always remember we were And My dad was living in Australia at the time, so we were over in Exmouth, this beautiful part of the west coast of Australia, and we'd been out scuba diving for the day, and I got back to the email with the offer, Um, and I think I accepted it in 10 seconds, I I knew once I saw it, that that's what
0: I wanted,
1: yeah.
0: There's a couple of interesting things you said there, I think it's, um, and I've obviously met your moment. and for those who are listening uh kira's mum and i always share dms on instagram usually over books but it's so nice i've met her a few times she's lo- such a lovely person but i think that's so interesting that she um was able to give you some of the insights of the job before you went into the actual course because i definitely didn't have any level of that understanding and it's something that i'm always keen to make people aware of when i'm asked about medicine is i suppose that It is a lifestyle challenge, definitely from a studying point of view, like at uh, a student level, but at a postgrad level as well. I think the commitment and the the hours that you work and that you kind of work outside of work as well are really significant.
1: Yes, I feel the same. I think it's Mm. really important that people know what they're getting into. Yeah, um, because it can be really tough, um, Mm. as you said, and there certainly are sacrifices on the time you have with your family and your friends but it's also very rewarding Um, and I I love what I do at the same time but I think it's just important that you're aware of that and it's not a shock and you don't end up stuck in it then very unhappy.
0: Yeah exactly it's like I remember reading the college prospectuses and like you we had very similar experiences so I um, and some of the listeners might know this but I applied for Dublin because like you family reasons just did Not feel ready to leave home, which obviously is a privilege to be able to, to, to make that choice. But I didn't put down Dub- uh, Galway or Cork at the time, and my points weren't enough for, for Dublin medicine. So I did dietetics for a year, like you redid the HPAT, which is the HPAT's a conversation for another podcast. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, podcast. <laughs> whole other podcast. Oh my god! But look, I think one thing I would say from both of our experiences like, I definitely went into the HPAT completely blind the first time and practiced a lot the second time around. Um, and I think that was the making of it for me. But um, I agree with you. I think definitely there was less stress, probably because we weren't in sixth year. Um, we weren't kind of dual studying. Um, but anyway, h Pat's a conversation for another podcast. Um, but it's interesting that you had a, a course you were very happy to stay in. Um even though at the, when you were saying earlier on you you'd like science but you weren't sure if you wanted to work in the laboratory long term or that kind of that kind of area of work um but clearly you had two courses you would have been happy to pursue or so it felt at the time
1: yeah yeah mm. I I just I love Trinity I suppose my parents had met there and um, mm. so it always had a special place in my heart so I was so excited to be on the campus in my first year um, and yeah. I had some amazing friends like I think my my first best friend my first day of primary school when we were four years old ended up on the science course with me so that was amazing we were getting there every day and and then i'm still very close to some of the friends i made that year
0: Um,
1: and i think it was maybe that side of it that i really enjoyed Um, Mm and and the thought of changing to another course when i was so happy Mm -hmm. um, was scary but ultimately that was the the job and the role i wanted long term and that's why i changed but I and think gets- I had said that I would not change the medicine if I didn't get Trinity. Oh, really? <laughs> I was so happy there. I was like, no, I'll have to stay here. <laughs>
0: it's, it's a magical enough campus. I agree. It has a very special yeah. place in my heart as well. Yeah. And so I suppose what I think would be interesting as well to chat about is the actual path through medical school, because I suppose it's something that, again, like I suppose working as a doctor I'm asked a lot about the training to be a doctor and while I I can't really, we won't go into like specific specifics because there's obviously different experiences in different medical schools depending on where you go but how did you find medical school like you'd obviously just done a year of science I felt when I did the year of dietetics first that I'd kind of gotten my crazy first year of college out of my system (laughs) was that your experience too or did you feel a bit differently
1: No I did and I was so relieved actually that I'd had the year because Mm -hmm. I remember thinking medicine was so intense from the get-go like we didn't have Christmas exams in science so you had time to adjust and then I just remember thinking some of our friends on the course would have just done their leaving start a couple of months ago and suddenly they were you know in anatomy labs and had exams in a month and I just I nearly felt bad for them they didn't get the break that we maybe had yeah and but I also had a sense of fatigue too. I was like, with all the excitement and the night set I was like, "I don't know if I can do another year and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually, it was such a nice year at the start, like all getting to know each other mm. and, and there was just yeah, there wasn't as much pressure, I think, from a work point of view, so first year was really nice, and I mm. kind of remember our degree in two segments, so for me, there was kind of first and second year where we were on campus, kind of mm. living normal student life um involved in the college life on campus and then we kind of from third to fifth year were very much on hospital placements um, yeah. and I suppose our lectures were then on the hospital campus so you felt very separate from the rest of Trinity um, but I was lucky I'd had three years on campus so I felt kind of ready for that mm. um, and I just think I suppose third to fifth year were a lot more intense because two of those years went towards our finals um, and I felt there was a huge workload in third year you were really Kind of learning how to apply uh stuff from a practical point of view um and there was a huge amount to to learn i think um, yeah. so I, it was more stressed in those years um from that point of view but um overall it was a it was a great experience
0: yeah i think that's really interesting what you said there about it, like kind of um remembering college in two parts so one of my one of my biggest memories from first year is when you and I were studying for our anatomy exam in the first semester. And I remember it because we were trying to learn. So for those who are listening, anatomy is one of the biggest. Well, you might. I don't know if you agree with me here, but it's one of the, the new the, the biggest kind of challenges I found. It's a completely different subject to anything that you'll have done in, in school because, you you know, it's anatomy and dissection. So it's yeah. a very it's a very hands on, practical but huge amount of theory module and you're essentially learning the entirety of the human body in a very short space of time. Um, And doing so, you know, in the context of working with, um, you know, cadavers is is a really unique experience and one we're very privileged um, and grateful to have the opportunity to do. But I remember just trying to cram all of the muscles and bones and attachments and various things into my mind from the just just the arm just the arm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you and I were having a conversation at like nine o'clock the night before the exam nine at night and I remember making my first cup of coffee that I'd ever I'd never drank coffee before in my life and that was the <laughs> first time I'd had it <laughs> um, <More> to follow <laughs> yeah but I agree it is the first two years really I felt were like it was it was very traditional kind of college didactic learning. It was apart from anatomy there was a lot of a lot of theory, a lot of knowledge, a lot of um, pressure and a lot of getting to know everyone in the class as well. We had a, we had a lot of fun as well as a lot of study, I thought. Yeah. And then the latter half you're right, I think third year was a shift. It was almost like transition mm-hmm. year in secondary school when people are kind of finding their feet and realizing that there's um, there's a, a job at the end of the tunnel like yeah. where you have to actually play doctor and wear the stethoscope around your neck and not in your pocket and it's intimidating
1: <laughs> as well you know yes on a medical team for the first time and, mm. and you kind of feel on the way a lot at the start which you probably are at times <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's definitely a big transition
0: yeah absolutely I think out of third fourth and fifth year which did you find the toughest do you think
1: third year for me I think just because mm-hmm. of that adjustment and I thought the workload was big I think that that subject we had lab med um
0: yes yes we had lab so it.
1: many exams in it
0: <laughs> yeah
1: uh, and I just found that really intense but um I think then I actually ended up having fourth year being my favorite year academically I loved it after that mm. um so I think in some ways it depends on the subject matter as well like I loved fourth year because um I suppose we had GP, um, so like in dermatology, there's that outpatient side of it and building that relationship with patients. As I mentioned in school, I had an interest in psychology, so we did the psychi- psychiatry module then, mm-hmm. loved, um, and then I'm a little bit interested at the moment in paediatric dermatology, so I obviously really enjoyed the paediatric uh, module of yeah. fourth year, So, and we also had continual assessment in fourth year, which I think probably suits mm-hmm. me a little bit better, I'm probably not, <laughs> not as disciplined as you, but... Um, so I just I found that year easier to manage and more enjoyable overall um, yeah yeah
0: yeah I think I should explain to people for background because I know a lot of people listen and like I say ask about medical school and being a doctor for us in Trinity the first two years were very much theory uh third year was a mix of theory and our first foray into placement as Kira said fourth year was our specialty so we did general practice psychiatry Uh, pediatrics obstetrics and gynecology and then our final year was just medicine and surgery I say just but like it's the final year so it's Uh, half of your degree and it was a roller coaster um god anyway (laughs) um I would agree I think when I look back on myself in third year um I compare it to my fifth year and I compare it to me now and I think really with one of the biggest challenges is translating your knowledge into what you're seeing when you start to meet patients for the first time.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Like, I remember we had to do presentations of histories that we'd taken and we had to go in groups of three, which is hilarious to me now, because obviously when you're working as a doctor, you have to do it all yourself. But we were going in groups of three to meet patients for the first time. And there was so many acronyms that we were putting into our presentation that we didn't know what they meant. And we were too afraid because we were just thought we were expected to know what they were. And um, so much respect for the poor clinical tutors who were so patient with us. Um, But I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think that was a, a tough one because you really had to translate those and there was a high standard expected by the end of that year. And I think we yeah. still had a long way to go even with all the work we'd done.
1: Yeah, it was like the year that needed to take you from, as you say, the theory to being ready for finals and, and yeah. proving yourself that you could be a doctor. So it's this massive transition Yeah, um,
0: that exactly. really shakes you. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember we had short cases at the end where these amazing patients like real life patients came in and we had to do exams on them. And um, it was the first time like we did so many practice exams on each other who were like, we're all, you know, healthy young adults for the most part. Um, But then we had all these real life patients who were so amazing to give us their time. And it was kind of the first time when I kind of went, oh, wow, no, this is going to be my job. Like I'll be doing this properly and, you know, I'll be responsible for what I find on these exams in two years time. Um, I think for me, I think I I agree with you on fourth year. Um for those listening, it's really interesting to to see the different specialties and certainly I thought we were really well taught for the most part in fourth year. And then fifth year, I think I found the toughest because it was the last year. Um it was very pressured year, particularly the second semester just before um, yeah. our clinical final exams. And I think I found it toughest because I put it and everyone does, but I I put in an inordinate amount, inordinate amount of pressure on yeah. myself and kind yeah. of reached the peak of kind of that imposter feeling mm. where you think you'll reach your finals and someone's gonna like pull out a jack ah, <laughs> like, in the box and say ha go home I had that
1: first year so badly I was like and I didn't even understand I'd never heard of imposter syndrome but looking back I was so mm. terrified that I didn't deserve to be there yeah um, and I was just waiting to be found out the whole year and then I kind of did okay in the exams Mm-hmm. Um and I was like, oh no,
0: it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like I think it what's funny is at the time you're just kind of so conscious of keeping up with everyone and trying to do yourself proud or at least that was what I kind of tried to do. Um and no one really talks that much about the imposter feeling, I don't think. Or I just I don't remember us I remember us all talking about feeling nervous and stressed and we kind of shared our vulnerabilities that way, but I don't think I ever sat down with anyone and thought And said out loud like i don't think i'm good enough for this job and that was just how i felt about myself and then i got to the other side of finals and was like oh okay in six weeks i'm gonna start and no one's kicked me out yet which is (laughs) you know it's it's and i don't mean that in the i'm not trying to be like overly self-deprecating here it's just i think that in medicine so many of us um we, we try to be perfect and try to do as well as we can in a really tough course and i think kind of self-compassion is something i would have i wouldn't have minded a bit more of um back then if yeah. that makes sense you know yeah um and then okay so i suppose one thing then I was to finish off chatting about med school mm. would there be if you were going back now talking to yourself starting first year again and i know this is a bit of a cheesy question but like would there be a, like two or three things you'd say to yourself starting again that you not that you do differently but that you kind of go this would be my advice for you starting out if someone was let's say beginning med school
1: I would love to have maybe studied my physiology very thoroughly in first year and if someone had told me this would be really important always in your career (laughs) Um, and like you know stop just having fun in first year this is important (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that would have been maybe I would have done that more thoroughly and just in general um, That it's going to be okay I think and yeah I probably would have told myself to maybe do things in slightly more bite-sized chunks throughout the year I had a tendency to maybe leave things to the end of the year and then Mm -hmm. put myself under huge pressure yeah Uh, but and yeah to to, like tell yourself you deserve to be there and it's okay and a lot of other people are feeling the same way yeah as you said yeah and to not put so much pressure on yourself all the time yeah
0: I love yeah. that. I think knowing that people are feeling similar is just one of the things I would tell myself and also to kind of like, I don't know, I, like I say all these things. If I went back, I'd probably do the exact same thing. <laughs> but <laughs> when I went and did my master's, I found that my the way I learned was different. Like I still it was more about the quality of the work that I did over the quantity of the hours that I put in. If that makes sense. So it wasn't like a I must be at my desk at 8 a.m. and finish at 7 p.m. Like I'm not able for that anymore. Like it was what do I need to do today? What do I want to study today? And how does that fit into my overall kind of study plan of how I'm going to get through the next couple of weeks or a few weeks or months or whatever it is that you have in front of you? I think that finding a bit more of a balance around the hard work, particularly later on yeah. when, the pre- when the pressure got a lot more intense. That's probably what I would remind myself of. Um, But I totally agree with you on the physiology. That stuff is important. It's
1: so important. Anyone in first year, learn
0: your physiology. Learn your physiology. Oh, my God. Even when I was doing the Masters, I remember sitting in the library and seeing all the med students with their iPads um, in UCD. And they had like 3D anatomy um, software. And I remember just thinking, oh my God. Like here, I was there in 2D trying to remember these Latin terms. Um yeah. so there's there's so many different ways of learning, I think, as well. And I think we all learn differently and finding the style that suits you and kind of having it for those five years or six years, whatever it is, is really helpful.
1: Yeah. Um
0: Okay, that was so I really enjoyed talking about med school I haven't thought about it in a while. <laughs> yeah, um, like a, it does. It really does. Oh my God. Okay. So I suppose what I'd like to chat about next is your path then for medical school into dermatology because um I'm always asked about how I got in how I moved to public health and kind of navigated my way there. And what people I think often don't understand, particularly if they're just going into medicine or thinking about it or outside it entirely, is when you qualify, you you all have pretty much the same degree, but that's not the end. You then kinda of have to you get to the top of the rung for med school, and you at the bottom of the rung for doctor life, <laughs> um, and you kind of have to start working your way up. And it's not a, it's not a linear ladder; like it, it branches, and there's peaks and troughs, and there's so many different ways you can get to where you want to be, um, and many different routes that can be taken. And I think that only really kind of comes into play later on when you kind of get to do your specialties and you're in fifth year and you start to realize that. and one of the books I think that, because you and I both read this book, one of the books I think that resonated so much with many junior doctors was Adam Kay's This Is Gonna Hurt, um, mm-hmm. resonated with a lot of people here and in the UK as well um, and just as a starting point for, for this bit of our conversation I was wondering what you thought of that book in terms of your own experience and we won't dwell too much on, on junior doctor life because it is it's different for everyone um, but do you, did you feel that resonated with you or what, what were your thoughts there?
1: Oh, I loved that book so much. I think I read it in one sitting, and I was roaring laughing like I couldn't hold it in. So funny! And, um, it is so funny, and I think it's so funny because it does resonate so mm-hmm. much, and he captures it. I feel in such a positive way. We sometimes we have a tendency to fall into this trap where it sounds like we're complaining, you know, mm-hmm. all the time and can be are negative about it, and he just puts this really funny twist on all the really tough sides of it and it's just mm-hmm. such a way to portray the struggles that are there um and I think particularly his intern year um I definitely related to like stuff when he was so tired and he was calling the nurse back who bleeped him and he called her mum um mm-hmm. so disorientated or um say for example I think he finished a 36 hour call and he came out to find his car clamped because yeah they never give us parking or anything. No. So, <laughs> and a girl from our year who's on obstetrics as well, literally that happened to her like a week after I read that after a long shift. Oh, no way. So it's it's so true to life. Like everything mm-hmm. he talks about is what stuff we all go through. And um, it also gave me so much respect for people who do obstetrics and gynecology. Yeah. I mean, wow. Like I, I handle, you know, having Pressure. two lives like yeah. that and then, you know, being called to multiple different places and it's just the pressure he described. I felt like he was clearly an amazing doctor um, who really cared and it reflected how so often we lose these amazing doctors because it gets too much Mm. Um, and because the system is failing and the staff are suffering, unfortunately. And um, so he was just an example of some of the amazing people I've seen um, leave the system.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's, it's a fantastic book. And I would highly recommend anyone who's thinking of doing medicine to read it. And mm. um, because I think it ties in the joys and the the sorrows yeah. of being a doctor in beautifully. Yeah. Um, but to also stress that there are other specialities not as pressurized as option mm. kind. Of. <laughs> yeah. uh, so. do Yeah. Like- turn you off either as well
0: you know yeah absolutely I thought it was it was one of the first books I've ever read that really captured the junior doctor experience so articulately and it is so funny oh my god that book is Uh, so funny (laughs) 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 it's just great I remember reading it when I was my mum and I my mum went and I went for a trip to Venice, and like we'd come back after a really busy day walking all over the city, and we would just chill out in the hotel room for a little bit. I'd read my book, and she kept looking over, and be like, Will you stop snorting? And I was like, It's just too so funny, I can't stop, can't stop laughing at it. And again, actually, it's
1: been a while,
0: yeah. And you know what it is, as well, is it's a great book for people to understand how much sometimes of the effect of our work and our lifestyle is out of our control. Like, when you work. In healthcare, generally speaking, your patient's needs come before your own. Yeah. Um, or your you know. friends,
1: your family, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Like th- how hard it is to leave at the end yeah. of the day when something bad happens at five to five. You don't go home and say, oh, sorry, lads, I'm done. Like, no. you just you just don't. And I think that can be hard to explain or articulate. And I think his book does it so well. Um, yeah. And I suppose then going on from there, like, obviously, it's kind of this, I think there's almost like this parody about, junior doctor life and it's this chaotic experience and it's full of um full of madness and and everything that adam described in his book i think what you've said there about the fact that like that the, the joys and the sorrows i think that it is packed with both and i think you learn a huge amount about yourself during those years and about um the human experience through the amazing patients that you get to meet um i suppose what i was wondering is um starting off as a junior doctor when did you start to think th- about dermatology as the area that you'd like to move to because I don't think correct me if I'm wrong but it's not something that we get a huge amount of exposure to in we we do cover it in medicine obviously as in medical school but yeah but junior you know, doctor training yeah very small amount in medical yeah. in the odd lecture and I remember hating
1: those lectures because you kind of would have someone standing at the top showing you pictures of skin lesions, yeah. and you describe it and you wouldn't have a clue you know because yeah and we hadn't had any kind of much teaching on it at all so I kind Mm. of would get really nervous in those lectures but um did the dermatology intern job in the matter as part of my intern year Mm. and up to that point it's kind of nearly like being back during your leaving cert years trying to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life yeah you're looking around you're trying to find a speciality that works for you and to that point there'd been stuff I'd liked but there always would have been big negatives you know they'd be like I love Mm. that but this would wind me up after 20 years you know yeah and and then I did the 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 intern job and I was like this just fits I just love everything about it I um I just I don't know it I
0: yeah
1: it's a lovely balance of all the nice aspects of many different specialities and I just knew it was for me Mm -hmm. um so then I in terms of my career path after that I guess I went to Australia at the end of my intern year yes but was very keen to pers- try and pursue it over there as well mm-hmm. so I managed to get an SHO job there for three months which was brilliant and one of the consultants really took me under her wing because I actually had in my first job actually had her daughter in A&E as a student oh and wow a time teaching her um and just doing canyons with her because she was really enthusiastic she was fantastic And she at one point was like, "What do you want to do?" And I was like, "Dermatologist." She was like, "My mum's a dermatologist in like Royal Perth Hospital," and I was like, "Wow!" And she was like, "She takes someone every year on this every three months, sorry, on this rural trip around uh, Western Australia to do these clinics and kind of up in the northwest in the Kimberley region. Um, I'll see if you know she has a spot and she can take you." Um, And she'd already kind of told her mum about me before she knew this. Mm. And as a result of that, um, which is amazing, it's such a small world, <laughs> Yeah, really looked after me, helped me publish kind of my first case report and um, took me up uh, on that rural trip where we flew, I think, 1,500 kilometers by a small plane around wow. this stunning area of Australia. Um, and we, I actually, with us was the first indigenous trainee. A dermatology trainee in Australia, and she's now the first Indigenous dermatology consultant in Australia. Oh my and God, amazing! So she brought me to local Indigenous schools, and we were like encouraging them to pursue medicine. So it was just this incredible mm. experience where these patients wouldn't have access to a dermatologist for, um, you know, in some places, six months of the year. This was yeah. the time a dermatologist was there, and um, so that was just incredible. And then I came home to interview for basic specialist training in general medicine which is you know then you're and you're an SHO training and um, and I had planned to go traveling for four months but then a dermatology registrar post opened up in St James's because someone had gone on maternity leave and actually my colleagues from my intern job encouraged me to apply for it and uh, they have always been very supportive and um, and I got it so I ended up cancelling my plan and staying and um, I learned so much on that job. The consultants were just incredible and mm. they taught me so much and were so encouraging. Um, and then I started my BST very reluctantly because I just knew I didn't want to do medicine anymore and I didn't want yeah. to do the whole so um, You found your area. I had found my area. Um, but unfortunately, you still have to do your three more exams and two years in medicine. But I thankfully managed to get six months of dermatology as part of that. Yeah. And now I'm working as a dermatology registrar in St. Vincent's and I absolutely
0: love it. <laughs> I love that. I remember catching up with you after Australia just before you started that derm job, uh, dermatology job in St. James's, and just hearing you talk about dermatology, you can tell how passionate you are, and it's a really wonderful feeling. I think to find you're right. Like it's 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 it's, it's almost like picking your your career path off your leaving cert, but yeah. you have no idea what you're picking. Um, at the, at that time, whereas with medicine you've had a bit of a taste of a few different things, and you're trying to find a, a place where you feel like you fit. And mm-hmm. I just remember how you felt about that was how I felt about public health, and that was how I kind of knew that you must like I could tell by your passion how how passionate you were about specialty, and I think it's a really wonderful thing to find that fit. I um,
1: yeah.
0: And how did you find Australia um working there compared to working in Ireland in terms of dermatology? What um this was where their main big things that stood out in terms of um the work itself or the work-life balance or sounds like you had a really cool and very serendipitous experience over there
1: yeah i mean i absolutely loved it i was there for 18 months um and it was just i had the most wonderful time i guess there is a better work-life balance there Mm. and they have a lot more money in their health system so there is more staff and in every area like there's more nurses there's and more physiotherapists like everyone is less stressed so people are Mm -hmm. generally that little bit happier in work Um, and and your work feels more like just one part of your life whereas in Ireland it can feel like everything at times um, and all consuming and so I really enjoyed that part I felt like they were very support it was a very supportive environment and Maybe a bit more casual as well, like all you, all the consultants will go by their first name. You kind of would be friends mm, interesting outside of work as well, which was really nice. Um, and it was a very difficult choice to come home because you knew you were coming back to a health system that was struggling and right. not advanced. Um, but ultimately, it was the pull of family that brought me back. Really, it is quite far away. Mm. But I may go back someday. I mean it's a it's a wonderful place I, the climate is incredible The mm. these are incredible
0: um it's just yeah it's great well I'll definitely go back with you for a little bit because I need to go to Australia I've never been and I really need to go every time I talk about Australia someone tells me that Melbourne is the city for me because it's a big foodie city and yes, oh my god it's overwhelming
1: the amount of choice of reading yes. <laughs> I don't
0: know where to go it's all good oh dear i could i would i would love to know i suppose i'm kind of a bit obsessed with purpose um and for me in public health people following or listening will know that i'm really passionate about prevention being better than cure and the importance of looking at the root cause of things which is one thing we try and do in public health is take a bigger picture as opposed to um let's say trying to put out the fire i want to know why the fire started in the first place if that makes sense not a great metaphor but i suppose trying to to go to the heart of a problem um and I'd love to know in terms of dermatology what is it that you and maybe this is a multifaceted answer but what's your why for the specialty or what is it that, that you really enjoy so much about it
1: um well as you said I just love it I'm very passionate about it um, mm. I feel like it has a little bit of everything mm. so it's a branch of medicine concerned with the structure functions and appearance of the skin hair nails and mucous membranes and mm-hmm. the impacts on these of both primary and systemic diseases
0: okay and
1: yeah it is and it's a speciality with both medical and surgical aspects which I think is so nice and yeah. I love having the theatre lists but it's kind of it's day theatre and it's relatively low risk theatre as well so um, and it really mixes up your week I'm um, doing a mix of clinics and a mix of theatre mm. and I think it has that part of GP that I like that's it's mainly outpatient based and a lot of the patients have chronic conditions. So you build relationships with them over time and you get to know them. I love um, and I that. think it has an element of psychiatry that I like because many skin diseases have a significant psychological impact and burden. Yes. And um, I, I think it's one of those specialities that doesn't rely on a huge amount of diagnostic tests as well. So it's fascinating in that sense. There's, mm. there's over time conditions in dermatology and so much of it is, uh piecing the puzzle together so from like the history um you start with that and then you look at their skin all over and you're looking for different patterns mm-hmm. different shapes of lesions different types of scale you're looking at the feel of it and mm-hmm. uh, you're looking for clues all the time and it's just and then it's so satisfying when you piece it all together mm-hmm. and it fits to something and it's that's really a really nice side of it and then you just have, get a biopsy to kind of confirm the diagnosis or help you mm-hmm. on the way but um Otherwise, you know, it's very much clinical in that sense. Yeah, uh, I love that there's a lot of teamwork as well. So we work with, very closely with our specialist nurses, uh, which are just a wealth of knowledge, you know, in phototherapy. Uh, we have skin cancer nurse specialists um, and and we also work a lot with other specialities. So the plastic surgeons, uh, the oncologists, the radiation oncologists. Mm-hmm. Often ha- we have a lot of meetings where we all come together and you get all of these people who specialize in certain areas and are experts in certain fields and they all put their heads together and they discuss the case and they just decide on the best management for the patient and that's just amazing I think it is I that's, love that yeah so it's just I feel like I have one of the best jobs <laughs> I feel really lucky
0: I love that and I'm sure anyone listening can hear the passion in your voice for the specialty I think that's so important as a doctor to find the area that you really care that much about because you're going to dedicate your career to it and if you give that much of yourself to it, I think it's really important that it's something that, you know, um, that you feel strongly about and that you're passionate about making a difference yeah. to. Yeah. And I suppose then what would be if people are wondering, what's the route to becoming a dermatologist, let's say in the Irish context?
1: Yeah. Um, so obviously you have to do an undergraduate or postgraduate degree in medicine
0: so mm.
1: between four and six years. And then you have to do your intern year, which in mm-hmm. Ireland is one year. The UK would be two years. Yeah have to do the basic specialist training in adult general medicine so say say you do basic specialist training in pediatrics and you decide you want to specialize in dermatology they actually have to go back and then do the bst in adult general medicine
0: oh Um, wow okay
1: so for a few people that that's four years then yeah um and then you're usually expected to do um at least one non-trainee dermatology reg year um before you're kind of eligible to get on the higher specialist training in dermatology so overall i would say it takes a minimum of nine years of training before you can actually start training to become a dermatologist wow and um, i would also say it's probably a reasonably com- competitive um to go for there's mm. 17 posts um on the training scheme in the country and it depends how many are finishing their scheme the year you're applying as to how many will be available so there's usually between zero and three spots a year. So three would be a very good year.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and there's eleven centres that have dermatology registrars let like, with say let like, maybe three regis in each department on average. So there's about thirty people going for maybe two spots. So best case scenario mm-hmm. one in ten
0: chance. So um it's definitely it's yeah. Mm.
1: It.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's the day job like day to day kind of the schedule of, of what you do? um
1: yeah so at the moment uh for the first six months of the year I'm on the surgical side of things um and then I will go to the medical side so at the moment I'm doing kind of skin cancer clinics melanoma follow-up keratinocyte follow-up clinics and then I have one uh, biopsy list a week from to myself and then one theater list with a consultant where I'm learning to do kind of excisions uh under supervision at the moment so at the moment I'm just doing Uh, the trunk and the limbs but then you'll progress to you know the face and the scalp which would be trivial Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: so for example my week starts at half seven on a Monday with the melanoma multidisciplinary team meeting where um, you have all the specialities coming together to discuss every melanoma case that's diagnosed in the hospital and deciding the best way to manage it Mm -hmm. Um, and then half eight we have clinic and then half one is my biopsy list on a Tuesday and we have reg teaching at eight and then my theatre list starts at half eight and then clinic again at half one. Um Wednesday is a more admin day with a few multidisciplinary meetings. So we discuss cases with the histopathologist on a Wednesday morning and um, to come to a diagnosis sometimes if it's not clear. So that's really interesting. We look at the histopathology up on a on a big projector, um, and sometimes we have a complex skin cancer clinic. So um, again where all the specialties come together and you bring the patients in, which is amazing. And then there's a lot of administration in Durham because it's all outpatient, so you're following up results and biopsies yeah. all the time. So I do that on a Wednesday afternoon, and then Thursday I hold a consult bleep. So if anyone in the any other team in the hospital has uh, a skin-related issue for one of their patients, they would bleep us to come see them for advice, or we kind of take calls from GPs or pharmacists. And then Friday it's double clinic day again, and we get a lot of teaching as well. We get about. Um, two to three hours I'd say of teaching from
0: the consultants every week which is incredible whoa that's brilliant It's yeah. so important as well it's so important though because otherwise like you have to learn and do simultaneously
1: yeah I know I feel so lucky they really um put a lot of time into teaching mm. us and they know how important it is so we we mm. all really
0: appreciate it so your job is obviously very uh no two days are ever the same clearly um, which is which is great. And you obviously work with, as you said, with so many different specialties which I think is amazing all coming together for an outcome for the one patient. And then, um, what's the actual training scheme like for anyone who's curious? Um, yeah, it's a five-year scheme. Okay. Um, you usually, you have
1: to do one year um, kind of peripheral. So, for example, Sligo, Waterford, yeah. uh, Limerick, basically just outside of Dublin. Um, and one kind of six months to one year has to be in pediatrics and um, you can choose how long you want it to be um, and okay. they're they put a lot of emphasis on you know continuing to have publications you know doing an audit every year and they do give you kind of a lot of time to do that you'll get a half day once a week kind of for education research purposes mm. and they definitely give you time you know to take a year out if you wanted to do a research year or a master's or something like that so they're very supportive of that um, and there will be an MCQ once a year every year um, until you finish at the end of the fifth years and you obviously have to keep a portfolio um, of everything that you're doing during training and there'd be some mandatory courses as well for example there's a biology of the skin course that people do in Cambridge for a week um that they all say is
0: brilliant. Cambridge oh that'd be lovely.
1: I know apparently it's a really nice week so oh, post-COVID time too. hopefully we'll be back. To
0: yeah. <laughs> <that. laughs> Yeah. Um, and I suppose we should say as well, the the schemes, when we talk about these schemes and training schemes, we mean with the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, the RCPI. Um, yeah. And the RCPI website is rcpi.ie for anyone who wants to have a look at curriculums or anything like that there. They're very responsive to um, questions about training. Um, OK, so I think we've we've taken a deep dive, I suppose, into doctor life and into dermatology and thank you so much for all that information i know it's going to be so helpful to people um listening what i'd like to cover as our last topic because i'm conscious of your time as well um is i want to talk about skin cancer prevention and we're heading into winter now having made it through A very strange summer and so the sun is kind of disappearing on us a little bit but last year ireland launched its first skin cancer prevention plan um we know skin cancer is the most common cancer in ireland and with two main types so non-melanoma skin cancer and melanoma there's around eleven thousand cases of non-melanoma skin cancer in ireland each year and over a thousand cases of melanoma and i think it's a really important topic that i haven't covered yet on the podcast and it's one where prevention really is better than cure um, and I wanted to start by asking you just uh, a, a couple of questions about it. Um, I suppose, first of all, one thing I've heard a lot about is our skin type. Um don't know a lot about it, but I've heard about it. Do we have a skin type or what do we need to know about that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree. I think skin cancer is such an important thing to talk about. Mm. I'm really happy you brought that up. Thank you. Yeah. And definitely prevention is huge. And I think the British Association of Dermatology estimates that four out of five skin cancers were preventable. Oh, wow. um, and yes, we we do have six different skin types that we classify according to phototype because not everyone's skin offers the same level of protection to the sun. Okay, and it's important to say your skin type is determined by your genes and it does not vary uh, according to how tanned you are. And um, it's determined by melanin, so that's a pigment molecule in your skin, and it's just packaged differently in people of different ethnic backgrounds. Mm. Um, so. The type of melanin in all skin types is eumelanin except for those with red hair and freckles who have pheomelanin and that is less able to cope with uv irradiation so mm. they they will be skin type one so pale skin which burns very easily and they never really tan um, just because they have that type of melanin that can't cope with the sun and um, then type two is fair skin that usually burns but may get a gradual gradual tan and you you can have dark hair with that but still have fair skin so you can imagine in ireland we probably mostly have type 1 and type 2 skin so we are at a higher risk of uv damage and i think that Mm. that reflects in the the rates of our cancers across europe Um, type 3 is skin that burns with long or intense exposure to the sun but generally will tan easily Um, and type 4 is a more mediterranean um olive skin Mm that needs intense exposure to the sun to burn. So usually brown eyes, dark hair. Um, type five, more Asian skin types, naturally brown skin with brown eyes and dark hair. The skin will darken very easily with the sun and only burns with very excessive exposure. Okay. Um, type six skin is very dark skin that easily darkens on exposure and rarely if ever burns. So okay. they're kind of the most protective from the
0: sun. Okay. Um, yeah. And I suppose alongside our skin, Oh, do we, I presume we consider our skin type a risk factor then for yeah. skin cancer I was going to ask kind of what are the main risk factors for the different types of skin cancer yes
1: so um bare skin is definitely a risk factor mm. and that's because UV exposure is a well-documented risk factor for skin cancer and mm. um, and for that reason I think it's so important to highlight the risk of sunbeds and um, and that was one thing that was really different in Australia because they're illegal there. Um, And I think a few of the dermatologists were quite active in getting them to be illegal. Um, And I think they should definitely be more tightly regulated as many tanning salons don't provide adequate information on the health risks. So, for example, um, a first exposure to a sunbed before the age of 35 will increase the risk of melanoma by 75%. That's huge.
0: Whoa, 75%. Yeah, and that's the the skin cancer
1: we worry about the most. Um, Yeah, absolutely. uh, And, you know, a third of uh, melanomas occur in people below the age of 50. So, um, you know, we often see patients in their 30s with it and you need to catch it early because it's the one that
0: can spread. Yeah. Um, so really, are uh, just a big no to some beds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, we do have some element of legislation in this country. I need to refresh my memory on this. Yeah, but
1: below the age of eighteen. Yeah, uh,
0: that's, that's what I thought. Yeah, but in uh, Australia, they're completely illegal
1: for anyone. Yeah, they just don't.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I suppose other risk factors would be immunosuppression. So transplant mm. patients, we we would see a lot in clinic. Um radiation exposure. So even though we you know do use radiotherapy as a treatment for some skin cancers, it does increase your risk. Yeah, um yeah. chronic injury or inflammation in the skin, so say a chronic lower leg ulcer, often you'll get an SEC, uh, which is a squamous cell carcinoma arising in that. Okay.
0: Um,
1: which is, as you mentioned, it's one of the non-melanoma or keratinocyte cancers. Okay. Yeah. Um a previous skin cancer so 30% of people diagnosed with a basal cell carcinoma or a squamous cell carcinoma will have between two and five tumors within five years of their diagnosis oh my gosh wow yeah and um, being uh, a man and being older higher risk um oh. and then previous light treatment say for psoriasis um so that's the uv again but it's a controlled uv but it still slightly increases the risk and um, smoking hpv infection uh, exposure to certain chemicals like arsenic um, and then specifically for melanoma it's occasional intense sun exposure so in Ireland I suppose we get a lot of that with people going away on holidays and not having a background very kind of sunny climate yeah.
0: um,
1: sunburn particularly during high childhood sunbeds as I said and multiple large or unusual moles or many moles and a family history of melanoma so they're the kind of risk factors but really the main thing is the UV exposure and that's the area of prevention you
0: know so yeah there's two things so actually actually it's funny i had uv therapy before i can't remember if i've spoken about this on my instagram before but i had in i probably told you this already Kira, i had mm. um a psoriasis that was basically like a, an autoimmune reaction to um a strep throat that i had but i ended up having to get uv therapy because the psoriasis was very extensive um and i celebrated my 21st birthday with um it creeping up onto my cheeks <laughs> nice yeah and it was the only time like it was a very unusual experience to go over and do this like short kind of I think it was over six weeks I had to do uv therapy and it it was a very unique experience that I'll never forget and it made me acutely aware I suppose of of skin protection around that time and I think you're so right you know in Ireland like previous to the pandemic obviously um a lot of people really enjoyed going off on a sun holiday and like I'm sure there's many Irish people out there who are more than familiar with a bad burn um and it's it, it happens all too easily I think and we do need to be really yeah. mindful of the fact that those those occasional intense exposures do count and they do add up over time yeah and I suppose as I've said already here and um, this kind of is where our public health and dermatology come together but prevention is obviously much better than cure and so my segue into this is what would be some um, some of the key things that we should do then to reduce our risk of skin cancer
1: um so i would advise uh, incorporating kind of an spf 50 i would say 30 to 50 but i would advise 50 into your daily routine and um, right. so i would do it just every day in the morning just apply it to your face and um, your back of your hands forearms uh, your neck, not to forget there. I think areas that are commonly missed actually that they found are the ears, your temples, your neck, mm. and your, the, your top of your back. If that if that area is not covered, yeah. Um, and we do say, like, if you look at the British Association of Dermatology guidelines, that it's better to not use a foundation or a moisturiser with SPF in it. Really. Yeah, I know a lot of people think that's great and they say it to us all the time in clinic. They're like, oh, I wear it with my bush. It's just mm. that it usually only has a low SPF, like 15. 15, yeah. And the vehicle is different. Like, it's, um, obviously, it's mixed with makeup or a moisturizer, so it's different to sunscreens. And these formulas are less likely to be rub or water resistant. Good um, they're also likely to be applied a lot more thinly, so they're mm. obviously to offer the same level of protection. So we usually just advise... Um, doing that separately just leaving about half an hour between them so you could maybe do your spf at the same time you do your teeth like just make them a a habit that they go together and then you do your makeup later before you leave
0: um that's such a good tip because i feel like you'd probably i'm definitely guilty of it in the past but looking at my foundation or looking at my moisturizer going ah yeah there's an spf 15 in there but you're so right the the application i don't put buckets of moisturizer or foundation on my face And it's only 15. I remember doing a clinic as a medical student with a dermatologist and she said, you always aim for the higher SPF because whatever you say to people, the application flaws usually mean that you only get two thirds or half of the actual protection anyway.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think another thing to understand about SPF is um, that sun exposure is a combination of physical light, UVA and UVB. Um, There's UVC as well, but it doesn't actually penetrate the earth's atmosphere, so we don't worry about that. But Physical it will actually only be blocked by a physical sunblock. So mm-hmm. um, you need something with zinc, zinc oxide or titanium oxide in it for that. Okay. Um, and then chemical sunblocks, which are kind of more commonly used, protect against UVA and UVB. And you'll see this UVA star rating on a lot of sunscreens. Mm-hmm. So you need to check for that. Um, and the thing about UVA then is, it still occurs on cloudy days which people often don't realize it occurs through windows um, oh, right. okay. and it occurs through thin uh, fabric so you know even if you're wearing clothes if it's thin you will still get sun damage and it's uba that contributes to the sun aging yeah um and then so it would be good to try get a sunscreen that is a combination of physical and chemical blocks so i think to MD do one I know roche Posey do one and then there's Altrus which is very good value as just some examples. Um, okay. And then just the usual stuff so you know sitting in the shade you know at the height of the sun but one thing people forget with the shade actually is reflection say if you're away and like the sand mm. reflects maybe even stronger than the water so you really to fully be in the shade you, you shouldn't be able to see the sky above you to
0: not be getting any exposure okay these are such good tips i'm here writing them down (laughs) (laughs) interesting so yeah yeah, because i always remember a for aging when i talk about uva and b for burn exactly for uvb okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) and what were the names you said again there la roche posay altrist and elta md Elta md that
1: one's a bit more expensive the altrist is good value but um they all have
0: a combination yeah Okay, really interesting. And you probably busted some of them there, but are there any? Um, I suppose I know, like the I know in Ireland, we're, we probably have a ways to go in terms of widespread understanding of skin cancer prevention. In Australia, they they've really nailed down the the S's. There, what is it? The slip, slap, slop. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember all five now. It's so embarrassing.
1: And <laughs> um, I think. Something I certainly didn't realise until I started in dermatology was that freckles and a suntan are a sign of sun damage. And I think that could okay. be a common misconception. And um, so people always talk about the sense of feeling like they look healthier or they feel healthier if they have a bit of a tan. And um, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, a tan is just never good. And um, so it's basically yeah. um, when our skin has been exposed to sunlight, the melanocytes, which Produce the melanin we talked about before and yeah. um, that's an attempt to absorb further UV radiation so it's basically when you get a tan it shows that your skin has been damaged and it's releasing more melanin to protect itself so it's yeah, a sign yeah. of damage uh, and the same with freckles and um, so unfortunately a tan is never good
0: unless <laughs> you're getting it from a bottle <laughs> I know
1: exactly <laughs>
0: I googled it there so the the S's are sl- slip, slop, slap, seek and slide. <laughs> and <laughs> they're just really useful tips. It's, I think it's one of the most successful public health campaigns from a communications point of view that have been yeah. put out there in the media previously. Um, and I suppose in Australia, obviously, you'll know yourself from first-hand experience, but they have a whole lot more sun than we do, so I suppose the the prevention is even more key over there. But just because we, we don't have the best... You know, weather necessarily in Ireland doesn't mean that we can get away with not protecting ourselves. No, it's um, still,
1: uh, very important. But, yeah. Know, that's why they? You know, I remember being in an Australian, and if you had a burn, like it would nearly be an insult to them. Really? Like, it would come up to you, and they would say it you. Like, it
0: was, wow, okay, because it's yeah. just it's just part of their routine to prevent it.
1: Well, so I, I mean, it's just. It, I suppose skin cancer does kill people, and they're, yeah. they're aware of that, and probably know of a lot more people that have had it because it's so common over there so they're just very
0: good at looking Mm -hmm. after their skin as a result i think one of the most high profile australians recently to have it was um people might have seen um hugh jackman just around the time Uh, of greatest showman and he had gotten was it i don't know if it was a melanoma or a non-melanoma skin cancer but he'd had surgery on his nose for that wasn't it i
1: think yeah i i I
0: can't remember exactly now but i thought it was like maybe a bcc or something a non-melanoma one that's what I thought as well. Yeah, because he um, there's a video of him. He was told not to sing, and they were doing this show for one of the I can't remember which television show, but they were singing one of this well-known songs from The Greatest Showman, and obviously singing like there's a huge kind of a lot of pressure he would put on his nose doing it, and he was told not to do it, but he just went and did it anyway. And just at the end of a song, he really goes for it, and he ends up like breaking open the wound. Oh, God. I, just,
1: like, I say if you were his like, surgeon, you'd be like, no. Yeah exactly <laughs> I oh god really love that movie and the music <laughs>
0: same 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 i really enjoyed the video i have to say now but anyway um there's such helpful tips kira thank you and you've covered the kind of misconceptions that i was going to ask you about unless there's any extra ones that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention no i
1: think that covered the main points i'd like to take away and then i suppose just looking out for your skin so looking i was going to say yeah yeah
0: how should we be checking our skin or how often should we do it or any tips that we should kind of stick to or
1: yeah so you're really and we we go through this with our patients all the time in clinic nearly everyone we see so um it's really about watching for anything new different or changing um, right. and knowing that melanoma can arise in an existing mole or as a new mode and um, So And the ugly duckling sign is very helpful as well. So watch out for any moles that stand out or look very different to your other moles. That's something we always look for. Mm. Um, And then we always talk about specifically for, I suppose, this is for moles now, but the A, B, C, D, E. Um, So, you know, if it's asymmetrical, so you can't fold it over on itself. And if it has an irregular border, so kind of cornflake, jagged edge to it. If it has lots of different colours in it, like pinks, blues, blacks, that's not a good sign. Mm. Um, A diameter greater than six millimetres, although you can have melanoma smaller than that, but it's just Mm. a good one to look out for as well. And then anything that's evolving, really, so if it's getting bigger, it's becoming elevated, just if it's changing quickly at all. Um, And then in terms of the keratinocyte or the non melanoma skin cancers, they tend to affect people more in their kind of 60s and 70s, and they're more like say a cut or an area of skin that just isn't healing and then they get crusted and it's growing mm-hmm. and it's tender maybe or it kind of bleeds and it's just not healing they're the ones that we're like we want to we want to see we want to see you yeah um, and then in terms of just practically doing it I would say maybe once a month most because um, you don't want to be getting too up to 90 about it either and um, yeah. it's useful to take photos of your skin to have a comparison because sometimes it's just hard to remember and um, particularly hard to see areas like your back, um, which is the most common mm-hmm. site of melanoma in men, whereas it's the legs in women. Okay. Um, and then just to undress completely, like the way we do it in clinic. So we do fall skin examinations, and I just find it's good to have a routine so that you don't miss anything. So I always start with the head and the scalp and the focus on the face. I've looked behind the ears, top of the ears, you know, areas that are exposed to the sun, work mm-hmm. your way down the neck, I go all the way down the front of the body, um you know down the arms the legs and then I turn the patient around and I'll start from the top again and work down on the back okay. and mm-hmm. then just don't forget sites like the soles of your feet between mm. your toes and remember that we we look at mucous membranes as well so that includes the mouth the groin area the eyes that kind of thing so yeah your nails so that's part of a full skin you just look everywhere um
0: very very thorough yes it is thorough <laughs> people are no, but you're right
1: yeah <laughs> they're like I didn't
0: ha- know I had to get down to my underwear you're like I'm sorry <laughs> but having a routine is key it's like checking not to this to diverge too much but it's like you know when they say feel on the first about checking um you know doing a breast check on yourself I think yeah. that that's important to have that routine okay brilliant Kira. I said this would probably be half an hour and I think it's been an hour or so that we've been chatting but you know what it's been great and I think it's such an important topic and it's it's great to talk to one of my best friends but also a fellow doctor and someone who's training in an area that's just totally different to mine but where prevention is is key as well and that there's overlap there too And I think it's been so interesting to hear about the passion you have for your job and for your path in medicine and I know a lot of people are going to take a lot from this conversation is there anything else you'd like to flag that you haven't um that you wanted to say in our chat about skin cancer or any other areas today that we haven't touched on or are you happy enough
1: Oh, I just would like to thank you for having me on. It's been really lovely to chat to you about all this as well. Um, And particularly the prevention side. It's nice that we have that little overlap. So um, to talk about non-COVID stuff when it comes to medicine and everything. So it's a nice break from all of that. So thank you so much.
0: Oh, 100%. I think that there has... There's a lot of chat out there about COVID-19 and I think it's really nice to talk about health topics that aren't because we know that obviously a lot of non-COVID health concerns have been put on the back burner this year by or have had to have been or because of hospital services being stopped. And that's very difficult because we know that those things don't go away just because we have a new virus. And I suppose just given all the signs and things that we've talked about here, it's probably really important to mention that if you have any concerns would you say the best place to start is just pop along to your GP and have a chat with them or give, yeah. give them a call and see what if they can have a chat with you about it I just think that's probably the.
1: and just to know that we're still here we're still seeing patients and yeah. and we're keep we're doing things safely and we'll like particularly in dermatology we're trying to do biopsies or excisions on the same day in clinic and then we'll phone you with the results to minimize the amount of time you come into hospital and um, you know we take lots of measures to keep you safe and I would hate mm. To be too scared to come in and see us, you mm. know, health is so important, and we will always be here for you. I think would be the message that I would be very keen to put across during COVID. You know that these mm. things still are very important, and we haven't gone anywhere.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that, Kira. I know that's going to be so reassuring. That's reassuring for me to hear, let alone <laughs> anybody else. Um, listen, guys. I just, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much to Kira for giving um, us her time. It's been so interesting to to have this conversation and i'm so glad that we got to put it in the diary and have a chat as well it's like yeah. catching up with a friend to be honest but it's great to make a podcast out of it too um and guys as always do um get in touch and um, kira where can people find you on instagram if they do want to um say hi or anything like that
1: yeah no i think my instagram name is drum d-r-u-n-n-c-i um Perfect. I'm Perfect. not the most active on Instagram, but I'm like,
0: happy to help if I can. <laughs> no, of course, of course. And guys, if you did enjoy this episode, do um share it on Instagram on your excuse me, I can't even speak at this stage. Share it on your Instagram stories. Tag myself in Kira. Give us a shout. Let us know what you thought. Um and as always, thanks so much for listening. If you do want to leave a review on the podcast, please do. It helps it reach more people, or so I'm told. And I just want to say thanks again to Kira and I look forward to catching up with you guys on next episode. Thanks very much, Kira.
1: Thank you so much. Bye.